HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Mitchell Davis, host of Taste Matters. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to yet another episode of Eat Your Words. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, to bring you all the best in words about food and maybe even some food about words. So we're in the gooey nugget center of summer right now, or as I should say for this episode, the pit of summer. (laughs) And that means that fruit is everywhere, as you've probably noticed at your local farmer's markets, apricots, peaches, plums, berries. This is the moment for them to shine and you know, for us East Coasters, it's all too short-lived. But for those of us who are despairing that fruit season is slipping through our fingers, today's guests have proven that every season can be fruit season. So I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Huck and Brian Nicholson to the show today. Brian is a third-generation farmer and the owner of Red Jacket Orchards, which has been growing fruit for four generations now. And you've probably seen and tasted their fruits and juices at farmer's markets throughout New York State. Sarah is a former self-professed fruit fruit hawker, <laughs> the right cookbook author, and a fellow New York uh, University Food Studies alumni. She also owns Co's Cafe in Brooklyn with her husband, Alon. And uh, Brian and Sarah have co-written Fruitful, Four Seasons of Fresh Fruit Recipes. And yes, as you'd imagine, it's all about fruit. So it's perfect for this season, but it won't leave you hanging the rest of the year. So Sarah and Brian, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. <laughs> so first things first, um, what are you guys eating this summer, fruit-wise? You know, what can't you get enough of? Um, well, personally, blueberries. blueberries, Brian. <laughs> you're always into the blueberries. Yeah, you've been eating a lot of blueberries. I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Sarah, how about you? Um, well, I just bought a quart of the the yellow plums. Um, Brian, which variety? Are, I just bought them at your stand over the weekend. The yellow. The yellow plums. I don't remember which variety it is, but they're really good. They're sweet. They're just a little. Tart. So those are the golden sugars. Is yeah. it the golden sugars? Is that the one that you have? Right? Yes, yeah. I've been eating many, yeah. many of those. Nice. Yeah, I feel like if you're around fruit all the time, you, you gotta be more specific. Like you can't just shovel it all in your mouth at the same time, which is kind of <laughs> what I've been doing. Actually, you can. You can. <laughs> um, so you've you've both been at sort of you know your respective 
crafts, farming, and writing for a while now. And, and Brian Red Jacket is now in its fourth generation of farming locally. Is that right? Fourth? Fifth? Yes. Nope, third generation, yeah. And the, the fourth is kind of in the wings, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you dedicate the book to the first and the fourth, right? So I guess that's, you know, yeah, the up-and-comers. Yeah, the, the fourth is, um, we're, we're, we're weaning them right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I'm wondering um, what sort of inspired you to write the book now, and, and what was your goal in writing it? Sure, you want to start with that? Or? Oh, sure, Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Brian, um... So I was working for Red Jacket Orchards at the the farmer's market in Williamsburg about 10 years ago, actually. This book was a decade in the making. And um, while I was working there, there were always so many customers that were coming up and asking me, you know, like, oh, what can I do with this? And, you know, we would just sit there all day and just eat it, you know, by the handful, shovel it all in, (laughs) as as you were saying. But, um, but. I found myself thinking that it was, you know, there weren't a lot of books out there that really educated people about fruit and definitely not about fruit farming. Um, you know, you'd see some baking books, you might see books about apples in particular or something like that. But the beauty of, of Red Jacket Orchards was that they were growing so much stuff. You know, they, they had the peaches and the plums and the currants and the cherries. And, and I just saw it as an opportunity to really educate people, um, not just about the fruit, but also about this, this family that was so dedicated to what they were doing. So that's kind of, so I, I, I sort of, I came up with the idea and I, then I had to sell it to the Nicholson family. (laughs) And was it a hard, was it a hard sell, Brian, or? (laughs) She did a great job of, of convincing us that this was something we had to do, and I give Sarah a ton of credit because it really was um, this project we kind of say was almost a decade in the making. Um, you know, it, Sarah's been working on it for quite a while to, to tell the story, and you know, I think I think it just came to a point where, like, you know what, this, you know, we, the, the the timing was right to to kind of reflect it. We we were you know on our 50th anniversary basically, and we said, you know, what a great opportunity to take some of the things that we've done in the past and, and, you know, all this knowledge that really my dad possesses and this kind of neat story that I guess we take for granted, but I knew people kept saying, encouraging us to tell the story about my grandparents and coming up to the farm and just the kind of generational type of business we are and, and how we've gotten to where we are in the New York marketplace. And I think the other thing that we were really excited about is when we talked with our chef partners and who are really customers of ours for, you know, decades, coming up, bringing their carts to the um, our, our green market stall and all that, when we kind of talked to them about the project, the level of excitement that they had for it as well, you know, really kind of, like, encouraged us on. For sure, yeah, and that actually um, that leads right into my next question, which is that <laughs> Daniel Hume, the chef and owner of one of the best, if not the best, restaurants in New York. I mean, that's to be disputed on other shows, but um, a lo- you know, chef owner of Eleven Madison Park says in his opening for the book that your stone fruit, fruit in particular is inspirational. So I'm wondering, sort of, how you felt when you read those lines, and you know, getting feedback from other chefs. You know, what do you think it is about? Um, your fruit, or if you want to be more democratic, just fruit in general that really gets <laughs> chefs and, you know, home cooks and, and eaters so inspired or excited? You know, wh- what have you noticed about fruit? I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, just kind of like one of those pivotal moments in the local food movement. You know, I mean, we're a part of that fabric. We've been selling in the markets for, for you know, almost two decades now. And, um, I think 
part of that just translates through to the relationship that we've been able to create with the chef and the chef's dedication to um, local farms like our own. So it really it is beyond Red Jacket, and it kind of even is beyond fruit, I think, um, why the excitement level and the collaboration was um, so ready at hand. And um, I think Sarah and I just, I think we, we consider ourselves fortunate that um, part of, I think part of the excitement was that we, because we have so much product to work with, at least here, you know, especially at Red Jacket, we, we go year round, you know, that we're in the markets. And um, I think that's kind of the inspiration of it, of the book, you know, is that, you know, you can have all this fruit and whether you're here in New York or even wherever you are in the country, you know, if you have access to great local fruit and you're working with fruit year round, this book really kind of tells the story of helping you utilize it throughout the season. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that was part of the, the process, but you know, with, with Daniel Hume in particular, he was such a great person to, to work with on His excitement is, is infectious for us too. And even, you know, a lot of the other chefs like uh, Dan Barber and all who helped contribute to the book were, you know, we were excited to have the opportunity to work with them and that they're excited to have our product and, and local products in general. Yeah. And I, I think also like, um, well, one thing that's really special about working with local fruit is um, there's just so much bad non-local fruit out there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like if you buy apricots at the supermarket or blueberries, a lot of times, unfortunately, or you know, strawberry. I mean, there. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It can be really difficult to find fruit that really tastes like the essence of what that fruit is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so, when you find a farm like Red Jacket, where you can really just like kind of feast both your eyes and your appetite on all these things. I think for any customer, that's really exciting. But for someone who makes their profession um, in food, you know, it's just you can't wait to get into the kitchen and work with that. Mm-hmm. And I think also one of the things that really excited the chefs that that helped contribute recipes to the book was this this idea that fruit didn't have to be just baked goods, you mm-hmm. know, because that's always really fun, I think, as a cook when you can play with the different flavor profiles of food and sort of see where it leads you. Um, I think that the, a lot of the chefs really enjoy that. Like uh, like Dan Barber's recipe for the apricot pit panna cotta. Yes, it's it's a sweet recipe, but he sort of is able to um, use the fruit in an unexpected way. Right. Yeah. And I actually, I love your savory sort of preparations yeah. of fruit. And yeah. I think a lot of them are unexpected and sort yeah. of fruit does get relegated in a way to people, you know, think about eating it raw or they are putting it in something really sweet. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering if, you know, maybe both of you can chime in, if there's you know a recipe or a couple recipes that really stand out to you as sort of favorites in like a, whoa, I didn't know you could do that because you were getting a lot of input from yeah. chefs. Yeah. Um, well, from the chef recipes, um, yeah, like I said, the Dan Barber recipe is always one of my favorite. Um, Karen Damasco has like a great strawberry olive oil cake that's maybe not savory, but it, I just really enjoyed it. Um, there's a couple that are a little more, um, you know, traditional uses of fruit and savory. Um, I know that um, um, Bill uh, Telepan, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he gave a great recipe that was like a radicchio and pear salad that's I mean, it's so simple and I think that's, you know, and yet like you put it, you look at the recipe and you're like, oh, this is going to be kind of meh, you know, mm-hmm. but when it comes together, it's just really delicious. And, you know, the way he 
plated it and and everything it's just it really makes you kind of appreciate what the professionals sort of have in their back pocket just mm-hmm. that little something that just puts something over the top without really having to go over the top for sure so how about you brian is there like a family favorite or well, I, I always i always like to say they're like your children it's hard to pick the favorite one you know what i mean but <laughs> um you know i've got i i i certainly love the uh the range of the of the recipes i and and i i I have family recipes in there too, so you know I can get a little hot water if I if I actually <laughs> chime in on, on one more than another. But I'll I'll just talk in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working with like blueberries and um, and um, scallops. You know what I mean? I mean putting. I mean some of the unexpected. I think combinations are some of the things I love. Um, my my wife often jokes when I cook that. Um, I never write anything down, so when she actually enjoys a dish, and I'm not saying she, I always make an enjoyable dish, but when when I do, she knows she probably won't ever taste it again. But I did write a few down, and, and a couple of them are in the book. Um, and one is kind of timely right now is the pork chop and apricot. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just in, you know this combination of using some fruit in an unexpected way. Um, Brian, have you made that? Have you made that recipe yet this summer? I have it. My wife keeps my wife keeps the apricots are just coming out now, so I'm kind of like you know one of the fun things with apricots is we we're one of the largest grower of apricots in the East Coast, and we have about 50 acres, so it, it tells you there's not a lot of apricots grown in the East Coast. But um, the fun part of apricots is when they become abundant. It's just you know you're always looking for ways to use them and freeze them and can them and. Um, you know, I, I, that was really the inspiration behind just throwing them on the grill with the, um, with the pork chops, but I will be making it soon. Mm -hmm. That recipe also has like just one of my favorite Brian sort of, um, turns a phrase when he, he talks about, you know, having a truly ripe apricot versus having one that you might find, you know, at a Mm -hmm. supermarket, an inferior one and how the, a ripe one you can pull apart. It's velvety halves and the, the nectar percolates up to the top. Mm. And, and, you know, it really is true. That's like when you get a perfect apricot, there might be nothing like better. Yeah. It, and right. it's sweet and it's juicy and it's not fuzzy or tart. You know, it's just it's perfect for pork chops. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. That sweet savory. I mean, just it works really well. Yeah. You, and meat. <laughs> well, it does because, you know, I, I kind of keep saying that, like, you know, fruit has natural sugars and natural acids and those are two really essential components to um flavorful balanced cooking Mm -hmm. so when you look at fruit and kind of pulling with with that yin and yang a little bit you start to see how much possibility there there really is for sure um and brian sort of going back to um what you were just saying about you know you guys are one of the only people that grow apricots on the east coast um the book is divided seasonally and so i'm wondering if you had an east coast audience in mind because there you know there are some americans like those you know lucky californians or southerners (laughs) (laughs) that they don't have to contend or i mean they look at local sourcing in a different way i'm not saying they don't contend with that and they don't value it but we on the east coast have to deal with like these brutal weather (laughs) shifts and so i think that sort of is what makes local eating maybe challenging for the average eater you know someone who's not deeply connected to food and so i'm wondering you know if if that um it's obviously something you deal with every day but if that was something you were trying to communicate in the book and and how you sort of you know work around that brutal six-month winter that we just had or you know it's a a great question and i think we're we were definitely very mindful of that excuse me going into the book 
Um, but I think things tend to follow, you know, whether you're on this coast or you're on the other coast, or even if you're further north or if you're further south, the harvest typically occurs in bands across really the globe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you'll find familiarity in that schedule no matter where you are. It might start at a different timeline, but um, in many ways you can expect it to kind of roll that way, you know what I mean, along the, the fruits that we had. You know, blueberries start in Florida, you know, they started in Florida months ago, and they'll end up in Maine uh, months behind us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think people can pick up that book and, 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 and find the uh, pattern be translatable in, in many different areas um and i think you know again i i think one of the things that was important to us is that creating a book where it is an easy guide and it is it flows and it's fluid with what people are seeing come on in the marketplace but also i think there's an opportunity when you know look we're fruit people right we we want people to eat fruit we'd love for them to start in our orchard and then to start in our region and and then be on our coast but uh, we encourage, you know, more fruit consumption no matter where you are. And, um, you know, if, if, if you can't get that local blueberry, but you're, you're able to get a blueberry in the middle of winter and you can work with it, um, then by all means, you know, that's great. We, we, we want to encourage that. For sure. Yeah. So um, we're actually just going to take a really quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're talking to Brian Nicholson, third generation farmer and owner of Red Jacket Farms, and Sarah Huck, cookbook author about their new book, Fruitful. This is Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. It's Tel Aviv. It's Tel Aviv. Welcome back to Eat Your Words. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we are talking to Brian Nicholson and Sarah Huck about seasonal fruit. Um, their new newish cookbook, <laughs> Fruitful, um, highlights um, just ways that you can eat fruit um, every possible season. And Brian, you are, um, like we've been saying, a third generation farmer. You grew up fruit farming um and you talk at length in the book sort of about your family table and how much happened around it and i'm wondering um sort of how that affected you growing up and also if you think that americans or or north americans have have lost that culture of sitting down together communally for meals um and sort of how that played into to this book and and your your experience growing up well, I really, I love that question. Um, yeah, it's funny, too, because I think Sarah and I had a debate at one point of what the name of the book should be. And, you know, of course, everyone gets input on that. And, and I think I threw out, you know, how about Around the Table? Um, because from a story standpoint, um, 
that was kind of my inspiration, you know, to go back <clears throat> to those memories of growing up on the farm and you know, my grandparents and uh, my parents and how much, uh, funny enough, when you, when you kind of go back in time a little, what are the things that pop up? And that table kept coming back to me. And I realized, like, how, what a simple notion that is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and how easy it is to take it for granted. And I guess, you know, part of, like, I guess going through the process of writing a book, Sarah was wonderful at teasing this out of us, like I said. I mean, and I give her the most credit for being able to pull all those amazing facts out of my dad for, like, 40 <laughs> years of growing tips. Mm-hmm. But um, I think what I realized is we kept, like, you, we, you sit at that table. It's the anchor point. You know, and there's so much going on outside with either the family or the farm or whatever, but you always kind of gravitated back to the table. It, and, um, and and there was always food as part of that, you know. So I, I guess I started reflecting as I grew up and got out in the world a little. Um, well, how particular in our family, and this probably happens in a lot of families, is we always gravitate towards the kitchen, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's a gathering or whatever. And it's not necessarily that <clears throat> gravitated towards there because we were we were all had our hands in the in the pot or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it just seemed to be a place that my family found very comfortable. And um, um, I do think that's something that's missing, you know, um, or that has evolved. And I actually do think it's maybe one of the things that continues to motivate people when they're looking and buying and selecting their food these days is they're, you know, when they're, when they're buying local and you can envision the orchard it's coming from, or even, you know, the family <clears throat> that you're buying it from in the markets, uh, it's an opportunity to reconnect back to something so simple where food is the anchor of, of our house. Food was the anchor of the, the history of this country. You know, we take it for granted right now because, um, you know, we're really good at making our own food. We take for granted that overall our pricing on food is very reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes back to um, a culture for me that's rooted in a very long-term process. You know, when you when you plant an orchard, it's a decade-long process. And I think that translates back to just how we do business and how we communicate as a family. And, yeah, that table is a great metaphor for it. And it's something that we do live by today, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and maybe this is a, a question for both of you, because Sarah, you are sort of the, the communicator in some ways. Um, I'm wondering, you know, farmer's market interactions, maybe you guys have far more of them than I do, but mine are usually pretty quick and surface level, and maybe I'm asking some practical questions, and I'm just sort of there to, like, shop, get my stuff. It's mm-hmm. nice to know um, who's selling it and leave, and I know that some people have longer conversations than that, but I'm sure there's a lot of times that you really don't get to communicate everything you want to about Red Jacket or um, sort of these underlying values that you do talk about in the book. So I'm wondering if, you know, people who don't know Red Jacket or those people that just like stop by, get their fruit and leave, um, what some of those values that you are, you know, wishing you could communicate every time are. Um, You can both sort of chime in. Brian, I think you should definitely start it off because... (laughs) Okay, sure. I don't want to speak for the the Nicholson family. I think what's funny is (laughs) Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. So I, I think, um, you know, I think most importantly is is that people understand that we care. You know, we care about the food we grow. We care about the community that we grow it in. We care about <clears throat> the people that work for us and the community we live in. You know, we're rooted in the community. We're literally, <laughs> you know, with 100,000 fruit trees and 
600 acres <clears throat> in this day and age, you know, with the how easy it is for companies to pick up and move and the fact that, you know, where did manufacturing go in the U.S., uh, orchards and agriculture and all that, you know, we don't go. We don't leave. We, we're, we're rooted to where we are. We, 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 we think very long-term, and that's a sustainable long-term process. And, you know, sustainability for us is more than just, <clears throat> you know, the environment and the protection of it is very important. And we work with, you know, the way we grow is biodynamic and we use organic and we use also conventional methods. But, you know, beyond that is the fact that, you know, we have to make sure that decisions we make today are going to pay off five, ten years from now. And, um, you know, with our employees, you know, we've one thing I love is we have very little turnover in our in our in our business. We have employees that have been here, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, that's a commitment we make to them. And. I think it's hard to probably get that when you just step into the orchard or step into our markets. But um, I'm hopeful that, you know, we're fortunate that you can find our products up and down the East Coast now, with our, especially with our juices. And I'm hoping, you know, that if that's important to people when they select our product, that they feel good about getting not just probably hopefully one of the best-tasting products, but a product that means something to them. So I guess it's a long-winded answer to your <laughs> It's well, definitely hard to communicate all of that to, through a, to a add on market. to that. To add on to that a little bit, sort of branching off of what you said, is at one point you said that you see yourselves, the Nicholson family sees themselves as being in the nurturing business. And I love that because, you know, it's this idea that, like, you nurture the trees, which then produce food that helps nurture the community and, you know, give sustenance to their employees, give sustenance to their family. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of goes back to the earth again. And it's it's just like a beautiful way of sort of looking at it, that it's it's not just like nurturing some farmland. It's really just nurturing everything that food touches. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think that's a great uh point that you made Ryan too about you you know you can't pick up and move (laughs) agriculture is I mean we can do it other places but if we're trying to do it here it is very much tied to place and I think you know in a lot of buying and selling and you know food as a commodity you you lose that and so I think that's really important to remind people because we don't we know us us New Yorkers you know New York City people don't walk by your orchard every day and so the fruit is sort of our only connection to knowing that it's you know coming from a place not too yeah, far away and you know and honestly Red Jacket's fruit in particular is really rooted to place because of, of where they're located um, in the Finger Lakes region is a microclimate where they're able to grow these things that other other farmers can't grow even probably I don't know 10 miles away I don't know if that's true or not but Brian can back that yeah. backed up or, or not. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. <laughs> it, it is the mic the micro we're right on Seneca Lake, so we're in the Finger Lakes region of New York and um Seneca Lake is seven hundred feet deep, uh thirty miles long and five miles wide. It's one of the largest inland bodies of water outside of the Great Lakes. And uh it's the reason it's the wine region, you know. I mean we we're there for the same reason. The incredible fertile soils, uh the sloping land that drains the cold air towards the lake during frost season. And, um, you know, apricots in particular are very uh, susceptible to frost. And, um, you know, it's it's hard growing anything up here. I mean, don't – I think that's one thing people should understand. You know, growing food outdoors is difficult. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things out to destroy it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, we're fortunate to be in the Finger Lakes where we can grow some of these very – uh, fragile, um, 
and, and incredible pieces of fruit, like um, green gauge plums, you know, I mean, just some of these amazing, delicate pieces of fruit. And the, one of the reasons, and I have to give my dad and my grandfather a lot of credit, I, I always joke we come from a long line of contrarians. Um, <laughs> you, you have to be contrarian to survive in, a, in an agricultural business where you're not the, the most largest or, you know, most uh, cost efficient. If you can grow things that people love and you can um, do it in a small way like we do, then you can be rewarded. And, and I, I think, you know, that vision and that kind of risk-taking and contrarian nature of my, my grandfather, my father, my grandmother, et cetera, uh, is one of the reasons Red Jacket's doing well today, and we're, we're proud of that. I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would be. <laughs> and I, I know that in the book you get into this a little bit, and so does your dad, that you guys struggled a lot when they started the business, and it wasn't easy, and it's still not easy and it's um you know farming is hard that sounds really obvious but i i think to a lot of people maybe it's not um and i'm wondering sort of what what you think can be done to better support local farming because there is a lot of support especially around you guys but um i imagine there's a lot more that you you see that we could do so um it's a big question but just sort of one you know one area that you really think could be improved that's sort of lagging to make it easier for farmers to do what you do? Yeah. That's a great question. And I, I think a lot has changed and a lot has um, come to support growers regionally and locally, you know, lately in the, the, the support, you know, even that we're getting from the state and the taste of New York and pride of New York. And there's certain programs the state provides us that have been helpful. Um, but really when it comes down to it, it's the consumer. It's, it's our customers who every day make it a priority to um, select maybe a local piece of fruit, and then, even if it might cost a little more, uh, and hopefully they're getting a better reward. And I'm not saying it always costs more. A lot of times it doesn't. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's our consumers that are probably the most powerful force there, and we want to thank you <laughs> and say keep, you know, keep making a priority. It, it is um, a long-term relationship. It's a long-term commitment, and we need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, although I imagine like the the framework around how you get your fruit here or, or how much you're able to grow, um, you guys seem to have really, you know, figured out a system that works. But are you seeing maybe other farmers that are having a tougher time? Like, do you do you see other people that aren't able to sort of access the market or get that consumer support that that you guys have through the green markets and through selling in New York? Well, I think the I think the, the market support has never been stronger. I mean, with the number of farmer markets across the nation uh, up, and I think retailers doing a much better job of, of helping support us and because the consumer is demanding it um, is important. But, you know, I think each grower has to make a decision on what's important to them. You know, standing in a market takes a lot of investment on, on, on the grower side. And, um, you know, part of it's just, you know, making sure if that's a priority for, for a grower to, to focus on that and be the best at what you can be the best at. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to grow more in larger quantities and, and, and you can't stand in front of it, um, understanding what your consumer wants is the most important thing so that we, you know, we can keep it growing as an industry and delivering value to um, you know, our customers. And that value is 
not just great tasting fruit and vegetables and, and healthy product that's more accessible to the schools and the institutional buyers, but, um, you know, also, you know, that protecting our watersheds, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a group effort. And um, I, think it, I think we're in a good place in New York, to be honest about that, and, and even New Jersey and all. So. It's good to, good to hear. <laughs> I'm glad we are. It's not all doom and gloom. Um, but you, I mean, you and your family, Brian, have been in the, the fruit business for, you know, over five decades. And even you, Sarah, you've been in the fruit business for, you know, at least five years. And I, yeah. I imagine that a lot has changed, but uh, I personally don't know too much about that landscape. I, I know a lot more, or hear a lot more about sort of meat production or dairy production mm-hmm. and how drastically that has shifted. But I'm wondering for, I mean, both of you, more the long range view and even in the past five or 10 years or so, what you've noticed has shifted. And then if there's anything that's stayed the same, been consistent that as well. Well, I've, I've actually had the pleasure of watching Red Jacket really flourish over the last almost 10 years. Um, I mean, they were nice and strong, you know, local market when, when I met them, but, um, I've really just seen people learn to appreciate what they're doing. And and that's been, you know, a great joy for me and I'm sure for the Nicholson family too. Um, and personally just, I don't know nearly as much about the fruit farming landscape as Brian, but I have just as a consumer noticed, um, a large increase in the varieties of even within types of fruit you know there's just more varieties and interesting varieties of apples and pears and plums and and everything which is is it's exciting you know because mm-hmm. i think a lot of the varieties just offer different different flavors and and more chances for people to get excited about cooking and, and food grown around here for sure and how about you brian what have you sort of noticed well, shifting? I, yeah well i'd echo what, what sarah said and and um you know, I'd probably add this. I think the, the local food movement is reaching some stage in its life cycle, right? And um, I think what became clear to me, especially through the recession and all that, is people had made this a really important thing. They care more now. I remember as growers were always saying, customers don't know where their food's coming from, and they don't know anything about seasonality and all that. And I said, you know what? For the most part now... Customers do, mm-hmm. and customers are trying to learn more. And that engagement with the food, engagement with health, mm-hmm. is great for us as a country. It's great for us from an economic development standpoint. It's great for our kids. I mean, I have three kids under the age of nine and under. They all just had birthdays this month, so now it's nine. <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> but, um, they, because we have fruit there all the time for them, um, which you could probably expect, right? I didn't grow up eating a lot of fruit myself, mm-hmm. but my kids love it. And they, every night they have an apple, and, and fruit is the tree. And you could see just the way it's being introduced in their life that if our next generations of consumers really, this is an important thing for them, that uh, the demand for fruit and hopefully the health and nutrition of our country will only improve. And through that, because if we're growing it here and if we are becoming manufacturers of food and and then, you know, the value-added portion of it, that's great for economic development. So it's a win-win-win. And I think Red Jacket, we've been able to kind of experience that. I mean, we're now shipping our juices, proud to say, across the country. 
Um, and it's because we learn through standing on the streets in New York what's important to our customer, you know, flavor and the purity of it. And um, it's being demanded across the country, and that's exciting for us, and we're growing jobs and all those things that are just, as a business owner, important, you know. Um, but even for health and nutrition and wellness and the nurturing of our community, um, you know, that's what, we're, that's what growers do every day, you know, and we're just part of that, and we're proud to be a part of that, and hopefully we represent that well. And, you know, when it comes back to the cookbook, we're happy to have a chance to kind of put that out there in that format and hopefully create a book that um, people find engaging. Mm-hmm. And creates kids that are excited about fruit. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's <laughs> the dream. That's a worthwhile goal right there for a cookbook. <laughs> and, you know, and one of the things that you said, Talia, about um, you, you said you feel like you know more about meat production and, you know, maybe vegetable farming or dairy or something. One of the things that I really loved about the book was the way it sort of gave that behind the scenes feeling of what's happening in the orchard's at every point along the the season you know sort of this is what happens in the springtime this is what we're doing you know we're waking up the farm we're turning over the earth we're we're kind of doing all that stuff so all the way through the harvest season and even into the slower winter months so if you want to know what it's like to own a fruit farm now's your chance (laughs) (laughs) for sure well we're out of time but i want to thank you both so much for being on the show again that was um, brian nicholson the owner and third generation farmer of red jacket farms and sarah huck the co-author of fruitful four seasons of fresh fruit recipes available now um this has been another great episode of eat your words i'm your host talia ralph we're broadcasting live on heritage radio and we will see you guys next week thanks that is great thank you so much Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.